cool initiatives is seeking to support, develop and invest in ideas or edtech businesses that will help schools and teachers to operate more efficiently and effectively. As you're listening to the EdTech podcast, you may well have a great idea or know someone else who has an idea that you think would help schools and teachers to do this, and we'd be delighted to talk to you. We're very happy to discuss administrative tools as well as learning technologies, or you may have a non-digital product or other service that you think would be useful. Cool Initiatives already works with over 12,000 schools every day, with 20 years experience of building and sustaining a profitable business. We want to be able to use that experience to support others at the very start of their journey and build something great together. So you may have already started a business and want to take it to the next stage or just have an idea and don't really know how to turn it into a business. You may not know your CAC from your LTV, your IP from your MVP or your burn rate from your churn rate. But don't worry, buzzword bingo is not our game. We're here to help turn a great idea into a great business. To find out more about our investment approach, take a look at our website, coolinitiatives.com. And please just get in touch. We would love to hear more about your ideas and how they could support education. Hello, everyone. My name is Laura Kidd. Sophie asked me to co-host this episode, so I'll be doing the intros and outros this week as well as making sure that everyone sounds their very best for you in the edit. I'm beaming into your ears from my home studio in Bristol, where I make music, videos and podcasts, occasionally interrupted by two very sweet little dogs. I'm very pleased to be taking you through today's episode. So, without further ado, welcome to the EdTech Podcast. It's a busy time at EdTech Podcast HQ as we prepare to launch our new podcast brand on adult and continuing learning, as well as bulking up our team to help deliver follow-on content from the podcast, including written summaries. If you haven't met them already, you'll soon be hearing from Steph, Imogen, Ewan and Ian with the fabulous Sophie firmly at the helm. Don't worry, all the new podcast episodes will continue to come out on the EdTech Podcast channel, so you won't miss a thing. If you'd like to impart your thoughts on an adult and continuing learning podcast and what it should look like, sound like, and who it should feature, then get on over to our show notes and fill out our new podcast launch survey. As our beloved listeners, we would love your feedback. What else is happening this week? Well, our friends at Cool Initiatives have just announced the finalists to this year's Cool Initiatives EdTech Prize, where they've gone even more early stage. Here's Tim Stirrup talking to Sophie about the entrance they've got lined up. I'm super excited as we have Tim Stirrup from Cool Initiatives on the phone. We've just been having a good chat. What we've done for this year is slightly different, is that we restricted the entry criteria quite a a lot so that the companies that were able to benefit are very early stage companies for whom 500, 5,000, 10,000 pounds is a significant amount and might make the difference between being able to continue as a business and having to do something else. So on the 24th of May, the six finalists will present virtually to a team of judges. And then following that, one of them will have a check for 10,000 pounds, another for 5,000. And the the remaining finalists will get 500 pounds each. We asked the entrants to really look at three of the challenges from from Damien Hines' 10 challenges that he set out. And that was to do with admin and assessment and then also some learning. 
as well, which we think is quite important. So the finalists are Apple for the Teacher, and this is a, a teacher, special educational needs, who's created resources for schools, teachers and home educators. Another one is Exam Screen, and this is an exams officer. So again, yeah, teachers have great ideas, but other people in schools have great ideas as well. Mm. And so we, we want to see those. So this is an exams officer who's created a, a tool for invigilators and exam administrators to use during exams. Nino City is something completely different, which is a, a Netflix for educational content. So what it does is it integrates content from a number of suppliers, including video, including games, so that parents can access those as they wish without having to take up lots of different subscriptions to a service that they might use for three months and never use again. Mm -hmm. It's like you rent something from Netflix or you look at a video on Netflix and then it goes off. It's a bit similar to that. Puspella is something completely different, which is an e-mentoring system for school and university students. So it gives students access to employees and companies, some really quite significant companies have already signed up, and they have e-mentoring, which is all about careers and inspiration and action planning. STEAM School is a live broadcast with innovators from the science, tech and digital world. Mm. It's a, an online weekly broadcast plus also teaching materials and support materials, both before and afterwards. So, for example, if you know what's coming up, schools that subscribe to STEAM School can also submit questions that can be asked to the person who's being interviewed. And then finally, Stepits. And Stepits are, I suppose, a Fitbit for primary school children. You can't see what's on the, the Fitbit itself, on the, the Stepit. It just records the activity that the students are doing and then puts it onto a dashboard for schools and teachers to see. So if a school has invested in some kind of physical activity regime or something which supports physical activity in school, then Stepits, as well as doing some things like that itself, can also show how effective that intervention has been. One of the problems is that people spend an awful lot on interventions for activity in primary schools, but don't have any evidence that it works. Sure. This is actually something that can show the evidence it works. Very cool. Those are our six finalists. They're very cool. I, I, I love the uh, yeah the diversity of what you've got what you've got there. Mm. The judging is at the end of the month. Who do you have on your judging panel? There's going to be two types of judging. We're going to have a people's choice board. So from the 17th of May, videos are being created by all the finalists, which we put online, and then anybody interested can vote for their favourites. So it'll be a People's Choice Award who gets an extra £500. And then the judges will be John Thorns, who's the founder of Cool Milk, John Sedgwick, who's the managing director of Cool Milk and Cool Initiatives, Lauren Thorpe from ARC, Jamie Hinton from a developer in Sheffield called Razor, and Jonathan Smart, who's a, a Matt executive head teacher from the Midlands. But you've got a whole mix of entrepreneurs on the one side, senior educators on the other, it sounds like. Yes, so we've tried to get a real combination of both business, technology and education. Perfect. So if people want to uh, either vote on the People's Choice Award or check out those finalists that you mentioned, can you remind us of the website again? Yeah, coolinitiatives.com. You can also take a look at our Twitter feed, which is Cool Initiatives, and all the information is on there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thanks, Tim. This week, we continue with our conversations recorded at GESF earlier this year. First up, we hear from the highly driven Dr. Yuyan Park from the DQ Institute, an international think tank based in Singapore, Korea and the US. Their vision is DQ for all empowering every individual with digital quotient, 
comprehensive competencies to thrive in this digital age, beyond the more talked about IQ and EQ. Dr. Park speaks about the DQ Global Standards Report, which is an attempt to define a global standard for digital literacy, skills and readiness across the education and technology sectors. Listen in to hear how you can get involved. So just finished the panel uh, in the Next Billion Prize part of the Global Education and Skills World Forum, having uh, flown in this morning. And I'm going strong on about 10 coffees and I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Yu-Yun Park, who is the founder and CEO of the DQ Institute in Singapore. So welcome. Hello, welcome. Today, as I understand it, you're launching a, a global standard for digital literacy and skills. For those people listening in, can you explain a little bit about what that standard's about and what it covers and how it came about as well? Wow, that is a, a very lengthy discussion. <laughs> how much time do you have? When people talk about digital literacy, it is not very clear what the digital literacy is really about. So some people think of it as a coding skill. Some people think of it as a how to actually distinguish uh, the fake news. So everybody have a different understanding of digital literacy. Also, uh, when people say about digital skill, we have a same issue. Digital skill for uh, some industries is really about how to use a smartphone. But digital skill can mean a lot of different things. So uh, now digital literacy skills readiness is the hardest actually education jargon everywhere in the world. Not just for the education world, but also for the technology and industry sectors. But there is no one consensus definition and understanding across what digital literacy is about, skills are, and readiness is. So what we try to address is to, hey, let's speak the same language. Let's build a common understanding for digital literacy, skills, and readiness. So that's what this the DQ Global uh, Standard Report is about. And, and this uh, DQ Institute is a collaboration of different partners on this as well. Can you share who those partners are? Sure. DQ Institute is, is an international think tank uh, that we started from Singapore in collaboration with the World Economic Forum. Our starting point is for the children to learn about the digital citizenship first. But uh, we found that digital citizenship is just a starting point. It is important to understand what is comprehensive digital competency that individuals to have in order to thrive in this fast-changing digital world. So we started to build this concept called DQ. It's like IQ and EQ. We have DQ, Digital Intelligence for Individuals. And uh, we published this uh, concept at the World Economic Forum in 2015 and 16. And then it was picked up by a lot of government industry players as well as NGO. Um, last year, we launched a coalition called um, Coalition for Digital Intelligence, comprised of OECD and IEEE and DQ Institute in association with the World Economic Forum. So whole purpose is to let's set the norm. 
of this terminology first, and then coordinate the global actions so that we can close the gap of digital skill gap, digital literacy gap, whatever we called it gap. And how did you get into all of this? How did you uh, found the institute? What were you doing beforehand? My background in 10 years ago, I started the NGO called Inflution Zero in Korea. So uh, my starting point was how can we help uh, our children to be safe online? Because I was mother. <laughs> I was very concerned about uh, my kids' uh, screen time and privacy issues and others. So 10 years ago, my motivation is to change the policy through the research and from the researcher background. And then while I'm working on this, I found that it's, it's not policy, of course, tremendously important. But most important thing is that how to empower individuals, especially young ones. So that's where I started to think about the digital citizenship skills. So we move on from the protection to the skills. Let's empower every young people to become an independent thinker who understands about the, the dangers, but at the same time, who has the agency to actually avoid the dangers but maximize their potential. So that was the starting point of the DQ. And then while I'm working on digital citizenship skill, I realized that it is not enough. He needs to be creative. He needs to be entrepreneur. He needs to be business savvy in digital world for him to, uh, to survive, not to survive, thrive. So that's how I build this digital intelligence framework. So how can I cover every area so that my son can survive and thrive? So that was the initial starting point. Very selfish. I can only imagine what the meeting was like when people are trying to agree on the definition. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. What happened is that you know we started out uh, this digital intelligence concept for children. And then I got a call in 2017 from IEEE. So IEEE is one of the biggest association for technology and industry. And they wanted to set up a global standard for industry digital skills. So they look at about 100 different literature and they told me that uh, DQ framework is one of the most comprehensive, easy to understand, flexible, and systematic. So can we adopt it for the global standard for industry. I say, wow, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Why not, <laughs> right? So that was a starting point for us to think about what is a global standard. When you say global standard, that means uh, we are not trying to prescriptive. We want it to be the reference framework that can be used by anyone. Because what we found is that important thing is not really exact definition. It is more of a guiding principle. Because um, yeah. I guess my question w was coming from the point of view of, you know, if you get engage some academics on the point of definition, <laughs> you know, you'll be you'll be like a centenarian by the time it's uh, finished, and they can get very um, particular about if it's this thing or if it's that thing. Whereas, like you say, actually, it's it's kind of saying, look, if this is useful, let's you know feel free to use it and refer to it. How does the standard become future-proof? So the gentleman in the last session was talking about, you know, new technologies and how do we make sure that, you know, if we're on one hand we're talking about Facebook, but then tomorrow it's going to be a new technology that we're worried about or interested in. So is it kind of platform agnostic in that sense? 
that is a very, very important point. When we set out the, this coalition uh, for setting the norm, uh, one thing that we suggest as a DQ Institute is that let's make it agile. Let's make it more comprehensive and fast-moving. How can we do that? Is that exactly what you say? If you're starting to go and say, hey, what do you mean by digital footprint? Is it digital footprint or digital reputation? <laughs> so if you're going down to that route of, uh, uh, of course, these, these are very, very important discussions that we have to have. But a more important thing is how can we keep our DQ framework more agile? In order to do that, what we decide to do is say, let's have a co-creation process rather than we decide what is the definition, let's build the platform that can invite all the tech community as well as anybody who is interested in digital skills. Come and join and let's have a co-creation process. How can we have a co-creation process? So what we are suggesting is that today we release this global report. It gives the overall structures and taxonomy. Basically, we have uh, eight different digital areas that can help individuals to cope with the demands and challenges in digital life, starting with the digital identity, uh, digital right, digital emotional intelligence, um, as, uh, to the digital literacy, from very practical part to usage part, as well as the human right part. We look at eight different dimensions. At the same time, we look at three different maturity. We started out from the citizenship, which is basically how to use technology safe, responsible, ethical way. When we have this life skill, we move on to creativity, digital creativity, which is basically, hey, let's turn idea to reality. That's the very important aspect of digital life. And third maturity is we call it digital competitiveness. So it is really about job readiness, it's advanced digital skills, basically be part of a, a digital economy ecosystem. So we lay out all different dimensions of digital life and different maturity. And based on this 24 competency, three by eight, we go down to knowledge, skill, attitude, and value. So we go down to the very details, but we wanted to have at least starting with the structure mm -hmm. and taxonomy. And what are the this 24? What are the knowledge, skills, and attitude, and value? This is a report that laid out all this the taxonomy structure. It's a starting point. And after that, we invite uh, whoever who is working on these sectors, come and join and contribute your thoughts. So it could be government, it could be industry, it could be educators. Exactly. Ed tech entrepreneurs. Exactly. And most important fundamental part for us is that all this, all this capability has to root it in universal moral value, we believe. Because without the ethical moral ground, all this capability, what does it mean? So I think this is a very interesting point. When we only talking about technical skill, it is no end because many people say AI will be more, <laughs> have a technical ability than human being in soon, soon cases. So now we see that digital intelligence is not just about how to use technology. It's more about how we can use digital technology as a master of technology to drive the better humanity.
So in order to have those capabilities, we need to have these uh, rooted uh, values uh, has to be the big component of the DQ. So that's how we structure it. And we invite everybody to co-create. Wonderful. And you were reminding me about uh, you have a UK initiative already kicked off. Yes. Um, the Lord Mayor of City of London, Peter Aslin, uh, he had a wonderful summit called Digital Skills Summit. And I love the title of this summit, Shaping Tomorrow's City Today. <laughs> and one of the biggest agenda is to uh, set the digital skill strategy. And uh, he, he recognized DQ as a guiding principle and platform to understand what is current digital skills initiative happening in industry. So uh, I am working with the team to understand about the how to uh, help the policymakers to utilize the DQ frameworks to coordinate and mapping of existing various uh, private sector initiatives. This is an amazing thing because this is one of the things, isn't it, that there's just so many uh, activities going on out there. So it's kind of pulling them together uh, really helps, you know, see where the consensus points are, I think. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that we found it the most fundamental problem currently is the speed gap. The technology move exponentially, but education and all this in our so-called social infrastructure, including cultures and policy, move in a linear speed. So we have an ever-increasing speed gap. How can we coordinate our effort so that we can bridge this skill gap? So uh, what we try to do as a DQ global standard is that we want to be the way that we can coordinate. So impartial, neutral platform for people to utilize, to coordinate an action so that uh, everybody can be benefited. If people are listening and they would like to do that, so it's coalitionfordigitalintelligence.org. Yeah, is that the best place for people to go? Well, I guess dqinstitute.org is a better place. Uh, coalition is, uh, we're going to end up uh, having everyone to be part of it. But DQ Institute is uh, where we actually do the work. So please contact us first and then we will form the coalition all together. Brilliant. So dqinstitute.org. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yuyun. But what about how to get women and girls excited about digital literacy and, more broadly, the sciences? Sophie spoke to Global Teacher Prize nominee Emma Russo, a science teacher from the UK. Emma's ambition in teaching has focused on creating and promoting opportunities for girls in physics and engineering. Only 9% of engineers in the UK are female, and in secondary education, very few girls study physics for A-level. We all hear these stats year in, year out, but what can we do about them? Emma created Girls in Physics, a termly event where girls from across London are invited with their female parents or guardians to hear from female researchers or industry professionals in physics or engineering. Sophie mentioned to me that her last memory of GESF was dancing with Emma Russo and that she's got some badass moves. Here's their conversation. Hello, everyone. I am here with Emma Russo. Hello, Emma. Hello. Emma, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing at the Global Education and Skills World Forum, please? 
Yes. So I teach in London in the UK and I teach physics. I am at the Global Education Skills Forum because I was chosen as one of the Varky Teacher Ambassador top 50 teachers for this year in 2019. So I've been invited here to kind of meet lots of other teachers and also celebrate uh, teachers' achievements leading up to the Global Teacher Prize Award tomorrow night. And what is it about your teaching practice that you think meant that, uh, you know, people reached out to you and then you ended up being invited here? I created and ran a project called Girls in Physics, which involved bringing girls and their mothers to events where speakers would share their experiences as professional physicists and engineers or in research with those girls and kind of create a network for them so that they could sort of identify with those people who were coming to speak to them um, and share kind of careers information. And so I guess kind of going above and beyond to get girls, more girls into physics and engineering. And who were some of the best, uh, well, that, that's a kind of a terrible question to ask, not best, but, you know, who were some of the memorable speakers that you invited along? Dr Jess Wade uh, is a physicist at Imperial College London, and she is just a force to be reckoned with. She's incredible, and she's an amazing, engaging speaker. Um, I think that you said that she's been on your podcast before, and... Uh, yeah, she's just really passionate about getting more girls into um, into physics and kind of supporting them and nurturing them uh, to continue with their interests and their achievements. And uh, I know she also creates and edits pages on Wikipedia for female scientists that just aren't recognised at the moment. Um, I've had some brilliant people, uh, you know, talking about their research on black holes, uh, but then also their research um, and then execution of building bridges in uh, places where bridges are essential for people to be able to get to school or to get to their workplace um, and and just people like that who are having a real impact on the world uh, so that's been amazing for girls to see the diff the range of places that studying this subject can take you you know they don't have to decide yet but it just means that it keeps it open in their minds yeah open and exciting and uh, yeah I think you mentioned that Jess Wade actually was an alumni of the school that you teach at or that you went to. Yes, so I just moved to Southampton High School in September and uh, when I went for the interview, I was just flicking through kind of brochure of alumni and I saw her there. So that was a really exciting connection because now I'm in an all-girls environment working with, you know, girls like her who, um, yeah, can be inspired by people like her. Well, that, that, that's kind of like an intriguing one on and of itself. So what's your kind of opinion on uh, in a mixed school versus an all-girls environment? Where do you see being more supportive in terms of girls feeling like they can excel in these subjects and go into careers that are to do with physics? So all of the research in the Institute of Physics is leading the way on this and they've produced lots of interesting reports and I encourage people to go and have a look at them. Um, they have... The data shows that in an all-girls environment, girls are more likely to continue with studying physics for A-level. So, the, I mean, the bigger question of why is a broader one that I don't know that there's so much research about yet. But there is something about that environment that encourages more girls to pursue it. What I do enjoy in my A-level physics classes in an all-girls environment is seeing a range of personalities and confidences within the girls, which is not something that in the two schools that I've worked at with a co-educational environment that I have seen. I've seen girls who are 
you know, they actually might be confident in different spaces, but their confidence in the classroom is lower and they're quieter. And then seeing that kind of full range of confidence within the boys. Um, and so that's really exciting to be working within and something that I'm trying to learn from. And when you were learning physics, what was your experience? So I think like a lot of people who uh, then end up in an all-girls environment, I went to an all-girls school. So I went to um, a grammar school in Yorkshire and it was a fantastic environment. It was very supportive. Um, so yeah, that's that's my background too. So maybe that's also why I'm a great to it. And we were chatting about earlier, so I've just moved and um, outside of London and almost immediately was hit with the reality that people do tend to talk about boys stroke girls in a slightly more uh, sort of a dichotomous fashion, I suppose, um, that I've noticed, you know, um, and uh, I suppose it's also sort of making sure we we build all these networks outside of just our big urban cities as well. And that, you know, it's um, it should be happening everywhere. And I'm sure, I'm sure it is, but it's surfacing those um, projects as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, that is a challenge, particularly for subjects like physics, where there are not enough teachers being recruited at the moment. There is a shortage. Um, and so a lot of teachers are teaching physics who do not, who are not equipped with training, then don't have the qualification, that's not their fault, but there is a massive short supply. And unfortunately, the um, Department for Education has not got a good solution yet to better retention and uh, recruitment of those teachers to plug those gaps. So, you know, you want passionate, enthusiastic people in all the schools promoting uh, those subjects and encouraging and supporting people to con continue with them. But I don't know, if you're, you're in a, rural, a small rural school somewhere, the likelihood is that maybe you don't have access to someone who has that knowledge and that enthusiasm and that experience. Uh, so I think that is a real issue. Um, and just coming back to the kind of attitudes towards um, young people, I guess there's sort of two things, that um, two different ways of tackling things. So I guess, so one is we need to all work together for on national agendas towards better gender equality. And we also need that, you know, within that focus on early years education, because by the time they're getting to me, they have these conceptions. Yeah, absolutely. And these, these stereotypes or these ideas of careers and things like that and opportunities that are very, very ingrained, both in families and within their own minds. You know, we are encouraging young boys to be risk takers and to ch take challenges. And, you know, our girls are concerned with being perfect and getting things right. And actually, in science, you have to be willing to take risks and you have to problem solve and you have to push yourself. And if girls are not encouraged to be comfortable with that from a very young age, then, you know, they will they will find it hard, not because it is inherently difficult, but because they haven't had the opportunity to develop those skills and that kind of that area of themselves. And what's the, the kind of greatest um, risk taking? So stroke kind of putting yourself out of your own comfort zone that you've done that you think yeah because you do get that feeling of like oh my god what am I doing but then if it pays off you know it's incredibly rewarding as well do you mean on a personal level yeah on a personal level and it so, could be anything <laughs> so I have recently started um adult improver swimming lessons okay amazing um, I really want to do that <laughs> so my, my sister did it and she is now doing uh training for a um, Ironman 70.3 wow so I don't think that will be my life but um yeah, I just have never been very... I love the water, but I just kind of breaststroke around and I've never been really confident. So uh, 
yeah. And I was up, I was genuinely, and I've told my students about this, but I was genuinely terrified before going to that first lesson. And I didn't go the first week, and the second week I did. And then I'm absolutely loving it and just learning different strokes. So I'm, not, I'm not sure about you, but um, so with running, I've, I've done one marathon. I, I, I've kind of, got to that, kind of got to that bit where, you know, you pace yourself and then you can kind of go for long distances. And I love cycling and I've done quite a lot of cycling. But with swimming... I'll, I'll swim one length and then I have to hold on to the end and then I'm like out of breath and I'm sure it's to do with my technique like I have no idea but I don't have that same like stamina with swimming so I need to get onto those classes as well yeah and um I've been reading this excellent book and I've totally forgotten the author so I have to go in it but um it's called Brave Not Perfect uh she's been on the book tour and it's it's just all about that how we're really concerned about just getting things right over this concern about failure and I think we are breeding it into you to girls and then that deprives them of opportunities. Um, and there's also an excellent book um, just published by the Women Ed community on Twitter, which is called 10% Braver. And it's yeah. about um, women in leadership in education and pushing yourself to, to put yourself forward that, for that promotion or ask for what you need, you know, if that needs to be part-time work or if that needs to be certain conditions or do you want a job share or actually do you know that you're perfect for the role but on paper it doesn't look like it. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, I think there's lots of messages going out. I think we just need to feed that into the system from a young age. And what's next for you? What would you like to do next? Would you like to be one of those leaders and, and sort of uh, in terms of head teacher or executive head teacher? Or? Uh, so I uh, will be starting as director of STEM at Southampton High School from September, which is really exciting because it gives me the kind of remit to work with all the amazing people in my science and computing and DT departments um, and to do some really interesting things and I guess also capitalise on some of the connections I've made here there are some astonishing people from around the world teachers doing amazing things I'd love to connect with them and also kind of do some collaborative things not sure what they will be yet but yeah um, yeah. yeah so actually do the outreach world. and bring people into that uh, yeah school yeah well. and, and just and kind of and learn from each other and there might be things that our students can do together even though they're on different in different parts of the world so yeah I'm um, I would love to be a head teacher ultimately. Uh, it'll be a while before that. <laughs> and um, well, you mentioned outreach and connecting to people around the world. Are there any particular tools and technologies that you like to use to help sort of share your passion for physics? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of the Institute of Physics resources are available online and they in that, with that issue that we kind of talked about earlier about some people maybe not being equipped or not having um, the resources or the knowledge to be able to act on it, they have a really good bank of stuff that people can tap into online. And, you know, all teachers in the UK use uh, TES, uh, the websites, um, and, and also education podcasts. So I think like this one, it's a fantastic thing to kind of hear about what other people are doing. Um, and I'm going to give myself a small plug here. Yeah, go for but, it. I was um, going to do that anyway. So. <laughs> My uh, friend, maths teacher, Alice Roots, and I created a podcast and we've been interviewing uh, people from around the world, just teachers about their experiences uh, so that other people can hear what's going on in classrooms. That's called Education Passport. And what have you found from interviewing people on that? I mean, where are the, have there been any um, interviews that have kind of surprised you about how things are different? An amazing uh, teacher called Lamia in Lebanon we had a discussion and she's working with refugees from Syria who are new to the country um, and just some of the techniques that she has 
has used to be able to get them to think about concepts like respect um, and to open up about their, you know, a lot of people have, that she's working with are deeply traumatized, are directly applicable to colleagues that I know who have had people arrive in their classroom, either from this or from another situation, and actually very simple things that, that you can apply. Um, also spoke to um, Ada McKim, who's the creator of the uh, TEACH SDG, so the Sustainable Development Goals movement um, from Canada. And she, you know, she's doing amazing things by getting teachers to um, connect. And that's a good uh, selection of resources as well on, on that, the TEACH SDGs website, um, for getting the Sustainable Development Goals into the classroom and letting kids learn about them and understand about them. And, and doing that digitally, so an international community can share that. Um, so yeah, really interesting, inspiring, and kind of directly applicable things for the classroom. And um, yeah, we have to talk about the festival. So at some point, uh, yeah, be great to kind of collaborate, get a podcast festival back up and running. Yes, <laughs> very, very keen. Yes, that'd be okay, excellent. Awesome. And if people want to follow your work, what's the best way to do that and to listen to podcasts and everything? So a multitude of handles. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Emma May London. Uh, and then um, at Ed Passport, uh, I guess you would see Instagram things through that as well. Um, and my website is Emma May Russo, which is R-U-S-S-O dot com. OK, wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Emma. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the EdTech podcast this week. I hope you've enjoyed having me as your co-host. We've got a few final announcements to round off with. Future EdTech takes place in London on the 11th and 12th of June. It's free for higher education people and everyone else can use the code PODCAST20 to get a nice discount. We are slowly updating our website and our global EdTech events calendar will be up and running soon, so please go and check it out. Congratulations to any of the schools included in the EdTech 50 announced in the UK this week. Well done! Finally, why not give us a rating and review on iTunes? We'd like to get to 50 reviews by the end of August, just because it's a nice round number. And we're currently on 25. Can you help? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.